Section 7 of The Descent of Man, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Descent of Man, Part 1, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 3. Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals, Part 1. Chapter 3. Comparison of the Mental Powers of Man and the Lower Animals. The difference in mental power between the highest ape and the lowest savage, immense. Certain instincts in common. The emotions. Curiosity, imitation, attention, memory, imagination, reason, progressive improvement. Tools and weapons used by animals. Abstraction, self-consciousness, language. Sense of beauty, belief in God, spiritual agencies, superstitions. We have seen in the last two chapters that man bears in his bodily structure clear traces of his descent from some lower form, but it may be urged that, as man differs so greatly in his mental power from all other animals, there must be some error in this conclusion. No doubt the difference in this respect is enormous. Even if we compare the mind of one of the lowest savages, who has no words to express any number higher than four, and who uses hardly any abstract terms for common objects or for the affections. Footnote 1. See the evidence on those points as given by Lubbock, Prehistoric Times, page 354, etc. End footnote. With that of the most highly organized ape. The difference would, no doubt, still seem immense, even if one of the higher apes had been improved or civilized as much as a dog has been in comparison with its parent form, the wolf or jackal. The Fugians rank among the lowest barbarians, but I was continually struck with surprise how closely the three natives on board HMS Beagle, who had lived some years in England, and could talk a little English, resembled us in disposition and in most of our mental faculties. If no organic being excepting man had possessed any mental power, or if his powers had been of a wholly different nature from those of the lower animals, then we should never have been able to convince ourselves that our high faculties had been gradually developed. But it can be shown that there is no fundamental difference of this kind. We must also admit that there is a much wider interval in mental power between one of the lowest fishes, as a lamprey or lancelet, and one of the higher apes, than between an ape and man, yet this interval is filled up by numberless gradations." Nor is the difference slight in moral disposition between a barbarian, such as the man described by the old navigator Byron, who dashed his child on the rocks for dropping a basket of sea urchins, and a Howard or Clarkson, and an intellect between a savage who uses hardly any abstract terms, and a Newton or Shakespeare. Differences of this kind between the highest men of the highest races and the lowest savages are connected by the finest gradations. Therefore, it is possible that they may pass and be developed into each other. My object in this chapter is to show that there is no fundamental difference between man and the higher mammals in their mental faculties. Each division of the subject might have been extended into a separate essay, but must here be treated briefly. As no classification of the mental powers has been universally accepted, I shall arrange my remarks in the order most convenient for my purpose, and will select those facts which have struck me most, with the hope that they may produce some effect on the reader. With respect to animals very low in the scale, I shall give some additional facts under sexual selection, showing that their mental powers are much higher than might have been expected. 
the variability of the faculties in the individuals of the same species is an important point for us, and some few illustrations will here be given. But it would be superfluous to enter into many details on this head, for I have found on frequent enquiry that it is the unanimous opinion of all those who have long attended to animals of many kinds, including birds, that the individuals differ greatly in every mental characteristic. In what manner the mental powers were first developed in the lowest organisms is as hopeless an enquiry as how life itself first originated. These are problems for the distant future, if they are ever to be solved by man. As man possesses the same senses as the lower animals, his fundamental intuitions must be the same. Man has also some few instincts in common, as that of self-preservation, sexual love, the love of the mother for her newborn offspring, the desire possessed by the latter to suck, and so forth. But man perhaps has somewhat fewer instincts than those possessed by the animals which come next to him in the series. The orang in the eastern islands and the chimpanzee in Africa build platforms on which they sleep, and as both species follow the same habit, it might be argued that this was due to instinct, but we cannot feel sure that it is not the result of both animals having similar wants, and possessing similar powers of reasoning. These apes, as we may assume, avoid the many poisonous fruits of the tropics, and man has no such knowledge. But as our domestic animals, when taken to foreign lands, and when first turned out in the spring, often eat poisonous herbs, which they afterwards avoid, we cannot feel sure that the apes do not learn from their own experience or from that of their parents what fruits to select. It is, however, certain, as we shall presently see, that apes have an instinctive dread of serpents, and probably of other dangerous animals. The fewness and the comparative simplicity of the instincts in the higher animals are remarkable in contrast with those of the lower animals. Cuvier maintained that instinct and intelligence stand in an inverse ratio to each other, and some have thought that the intellectual faculties of the higher animals have been gradually developed from their instincts. But Pouchet, in an interesting essay, footnote 2, L'instinct chez les enfants, Revue des deux mondes, February 1870, page 690, end footnote, has shown that no such inverse ratio really exists. Those insects which possess the most wonderful instincts are certainly the most intelligent. In the vertebrate series, the least intelligent members, namely fishes and amphibians, do not possess complex instincts, and amongst mammals the animal most remarkable for its instincts, namely the beaver, is highly intelligent, as will be admitted by everyone who has read Mr. Morgan's excellent work. Footnote 3. The American Beaver and His Works, 1868. End footnote. Although the first dawnings of intelligence, according to Mr. Herbert Spencer, footnote 4, The Principles of Psychology, 2nd edition, 1870, pages 418 to 443, end footnote, have been developed through the multiplication and coordination of reflex actions, and although many of the simpler instincts graduate into reflex actions, and can hardly be distinguished from them, as in the case of young animals sucking, yet the most complex instincts seem to have originated independently of intelligence. I am, however, very far from wishing to deny that instinctive actions may lose their fixed and untaught character, and be replaced by others performed by the aid of the free will. On the other hand, some intelligent actions, after being performed during several generations, become converted into instincts and are inherited, as when birds on oceanic islands learn to avoid man. 
These actions may then be said to be degraded in character, for they are no longer performed through reason or from experience. But the greater number of the more complex instincts appear to have been gained in a wholly different manner, through the natural selection of variations of simpler instinctive actions. Such variations appear to arise from the same unknown causes acting on the cerebral organization, which induce slight variations or individual differences in other parts of the body. And these variations, owing to our ignorance, are often said to arise spontaneously. We can, I think, come to no other conclusion with respect to the origin of the more complex instincts, when we reflect on the marvelous instincts of sterile worker ants and bees, which leave no offspring to inherit the effects of experience and of modified habits. Although, as we learn from the above-mentioned insects and the beaver, a high degree of intelligence is certainly compatible with complex instincts, and although actions, at first learnt voluntarily, can soon through habit be performed with the quickness and certainty of a reflex action, yet it is not improbable that there is a certain amount of interference between the development of free intelligence and of instinct, which latter implies some inherited modification of the brain. Little is known about the functions of the brain, but we can perceive that as the intellectual powers become highly developed, the various parts of the brain must be connected by very intricate channels of the freest intercommunication, and as a consequence, each separate part would perhaps tend to be less well fitted to answer to particular sensations or associations in a definite and inherited, that is, instinctive, manner. There seems even to exist some relation between a low degree of intelligence and a strong tendency to the formation of fixed, though not inherited, habits. For as a sagacious physician remarked to me, persons who are slightly imbecile tend to act in everything by routine or habit, and they are rendered much happier if this is encouraged. I have thought this digression worth giving, because we may easily underrate the mental powers of the higher animals, and especially of man, when we compare their actions founded on the memory of past events, on foresight, reason, and imagination, with exactly similar actions instinctively performed by the lower animals. In this latter case, the capacity of performing such actions has been gained step by step through the variability of the mental organs and natural selection, without any conscious intelligence on the part of the animal during each successive generation. No doubt, as Mr. Wallace has argued, footnote 5, Contributions to the Theory of Natural Selection, 1870, page 212, end footnote. Much of the intelligent work done by man is due to imitation and not to reason. But there is this great difference between his actions and many of those performed by the lower animals. Namely, that man cannot, on his first trial, make, for instance, a stone hatchet or a canoe, through his power of imitation. He has to learn his work by practice. A beaver, on the other hand, can make its dam or canal, and a bird its nest as well, or nearly as well, and a spider its wonderful web quite as well. Footnote 6. For the evidence on this head, see Mr. J. Trahern Mogridge's most interesting work, Harvesting Ants and Trapdoor Spiders, 1873, pages 126 and 128. End footnote. The first time it tries, as when old and experienced. To return to our immediate subject, the lower animals, like man, manifestly feel pleasure and pain, happiness and misery. Happiness is never better exhibited than by young animals, such as puppies, kittens, lambs, etc., when playing together, like our own children. 
Even insects play together, as has been described by that excellent observer, P. Huber, footnote 7, Recherche sur les murs de Fourmis, 1810, page 173, end footnote, who saw ants chasing and pretending to bite each other, like so many puppies. The fact that lower animals are excited by the same emotions as ourselves is so well established that it will not be necessary to weary the reader by many details. Terror acts in the same manner on them as on us, causing the muscles to tremble, the heart to palpitate, the sphincters to be relaxed, and the hair to stand on end. Suspicion, the offspring of fear, is eminently characteristic of most wild animals. It is, I think, impossible to read the account given by Sir E. Tennant of the behavior of the female elephants used as decoys without admitting that they intentionally practice deceit and well know what they are about. Courage and timidity are extremely variable qualities in the individuals of the same species, as is plainly seen in our dogs. Some dogs and horses are ill-tempered and easily turn sulky. Others are good-tempered, and these qualities are certainly inherited. Everyone knows how liable animals are to furious rage, and how plainly they show it. Many, and probably true, anecdotes have been published on the long-delayed and artful revenge of various animals. The accurate Renger and Brehm, footnote 8, all the following statements given on the authority of these two naturalists are taken from Renger's Naturgesse der Sagatier von Paraguay, pages 41 to 57, and from Brehm's Thierleben B. I.S. 10 through 87, end footnote, state that the American and African monkeys, which they kept tame, certainly revenged themselves. Sir Andrew Smith, a zoologist whose scrupulous accuracy was known to many persons, told me the following story of which he was himself an eyewitness. At the Cape of Good Hope an officer had often plagued a certain baboon, and the animal, seeing him approaching one Sunday for parade, poured water into a hole and hastily made some thick mud, which he skillfully dashed over the officer as he passed by, to the amusement of many bystanders. For long afterwards the baboon rejoiced and triumphed whenever he saw his victim. The love of a dog for his master is notorious. As an old writer quaintly says, footnote 9, quoted by Dr. Lauder Lindsay in his Philosophy of Mind in the Lower Animals, Journal of Mental Science, April 1871, page 38, quote, A dog is the only thing on this earth that loves you more than he loves himself, unquote. End footnote. In the agony of death a dog has been known to caress his master, and everyone has heard of the dog suffering under vivisection, who licked the hand of the operator. This man, unless the operation was fully justified by an increase of our knowledge, or unless he had a heart of stone, must have felt remorse to the last hour of his life. As Wellall, footnote 10, Bridgewater Treatise, page 263, end footnote, has well asked, Quote, who that reads the touching instances of maternal affection related so often of the women of all nations and of the females of all animals can doubt that the principle of action is the same in the two cases. Unquote. We see maternal affection exhibited in the most trifling details. Thus Renger observed an African monkey, a cebus, carefully driving away the flies which plagued her infant, and Duvossel saw a hylobates washing the faces of her young ones in a stream. So intense is the grief of female monkeys for the loss of their young, that it invariably caused the death of certain kinds kept under confinement by Brehm in North Africa. Orphan monkeys are always adopted and carefully guarded by the other monkeys, 
both males and females. One female baboon had so capacious a heart that she not only adopted young monkeys of other species, but stole young dogs and cats, which she continually carried about. Her kindness, however, did not go so far as to share her food with her adopted offspring, at which Brem was surprised, as his monkeys always divided everything quite fairly with their own young ones. An adopted kitten scratched this affectionate baboon, who certainly had a fine intellect, for she was much astonished at being scratched, and immediately examined the kitten's feet, and without more ado bit off the claws. Footnote 11. A critic without any grounds. Quarterly Review, July 1871, page 72, and footnote. Disputes the possibility of this act as described by Brem, for the sake of discrediting my work. Therefore I tried, and found that I could readily seize with my own teeth the sharp little claws of a kitten nearly five weeks old. In the zoological gardens I heard from the keeper that an old baboon, C. Chakma, had adopted a rhesus monkey, but when a young drill and mandrill were placed in the cage, she seemed to perceive that these monkeys, though distinct species, were her nearer relatives, for she at once rejected the rhesus and adopted both of them. The young rhesus, as I saw, was greatly discontented at thus being rejected, and it would, like a naughty child, annoy and attack the young drill and mandrill whenever it could do so with safety, this conduct exciting great indignation in the old baboon. Monkeys will also, according to Brem, defend their master when attacked by anyone, as well as dogs to whom they are attached, from the attacks of other dogs. But we here trench on the subjects of sympathy and fidelity, to which I shall recur. Some of Brem's monkeys took much delight in teasing a certain old dog whom they disliked, as well as other animals, in various ingenious ways. Most of the more complex emotions are common to the higher animals and ourselves. Everyone has seen how jealous a dog is of its master's affection, if lavished on any other creature. And I have observed the same fact with monkeys. This shows that animals not only love, but have desire to be loved. Animals manifestly feel emulation. They love approbation or praise, and a dog carrying a basket for his master exhibits in high degree self-complacency or pride. There can, I think, be no doubt that a dog feels shame, as distinct from fear, and something very like modesty when begging too often for food. A great dog scorns the snarling of a little dog, and this may be called magnanimity. Some observers have stated that monkeys certainly dislike being laughed at, and they sometimes invent imaginary offenses. In the zoological gardens I saw a baboon who always got into a furious rage when his keeper took out a letter or book and read it aloud to him, and his rage was so violent that, as I witnessed on one occasion, he bit his own leg till the blood flowed. Dogs show what may be fairly called a sense of humor, as distinct from mere play. If a bit of stick or other such object be thrown to one, he will often carry it away for a short distance, and then squatting down with it on the ground close before him, will wait until his master comes quite close to take it away. The dog will then seize it and run away in triumph, repeating the same maneuver and evidently enjoying the practical joke. We will now turn to the more intellectual emotions and faculties, which are very important, as forming the basis for the development of the higher mental powers. Animals manifestly enjoy excitement and suffer from ennui, as may be seen with dogs and, according to Renger, with monkeys. All animals feel wonder, and many exhibit curiosity. They sometimes suffer from this latter quality, as when the hunter plays antics and thus attracts them. I have witnessed this with deer, 
and so it is with the wary chamois, and with some kinds of wild ducks. Brem gives a curious account of the instinctive dread which his monkeys exhibited for snakes. But their curiosity was so great that they could not desist from occasionally satiating their horror in a most human fashion by lifting up the lid of the box in which the snakes were kept. I was so much surprised at his account that I took a stuffed and coiled-up snake into the monkey-house at the zoological gardens, and the excitement thus caused was one of the most curious spectacles which I ever beheld. Three species of Cercopithecus were the most alarmed. They dashed about their cages, and uttered sharp cries of danger, which were understood by the other monkeys. A few young monkeys, and one old Anubis baboon alone, took no notice of the snake. I then placed the stuffed specimen on the ground in one of the larger compartments. After a time all the monkeys collected round it in a large circle, and stared intently, presented a most ludicrous appearance. They became extremely nervous, so that when a wooden ball, with which they were familiar as a plaything, was accidentally moved in the straw under which it was partly hidden, they all instantly started away. These monkeys behave very differently when a dead fish, a mouse, footnote 12, I have given a short account of their behavior on this occasion in my Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals, page 43, end footnote, a living turtle and other new objects were placed in their cages. For though at first frightened, they soon approached, handled, and examined them. I then placed a live snake in a paper bag, with the mouth loosely closed, in one of the larger compartments. One of the monkeys immediately approached, cautiously opened the bag a little, peeped in, and instantly dashed away. Then I witnessed what Brem has described, for monkey after monkey, with head raised high and turned on one side, could not resist taking a momentary peep into the upright bag at the dreadful object lying quietly at the bottom. It would almost appear as if the monkeys had some notion of zoological affinities, for those kept by Brem exhibited a strange, though mistaken, instinctive dread of innocent lizards and frogs. An orang also has been known to be much alarmed at the first sight of a turtle. Footnote 13. W. C. L. Martin, Natural History of Mammalia, 1841, page 405. End footnote. The principle of imitation is strong in man, and especially as I have myself observed with savages. In certain morbid stages of the brain, this tendency is exaggerated to an extraordinary degree. Some hemiplegic patients and others, at the commencement of inflammatory softening of the brain, unconsciously imitate every word which is uttered, whether in their own or in a foreign language, and every gesture or action which is performed near them. Footnote 14. Dr. Bateman, On Aphasia, 1870, page 110. End footnote. The Sore, footnote 15, quoted by Vogt, Memoir sur les microcephalae, 1867, page 168. End footnote. Has remarked that no animal voluntarily imitates an action performed by man, until in the ascending scale we come to monkeys, which are well known to be ridiculous mockers. Animals, however, sometimes imitate each other's actions. Thus two species of wolves, which had been reared by dogs, learn to bark, as does sometimes the jackal. Footnote 16. The Variation of Animals and Plants Under Domestication. Volume 1, page 27. End footnote. But whether this can be called voluntary imitation is another question. Birds imitate the songs of their parents, and sometimes of other birds, and parrots are notorious imitators of any sound which they often hear. Durot de la Malle gives an account, footnote 17, Annales de Science Naturelle, first series, 
volume 22, page 397, end footnote, of a dog reared by a cat who learned to imitate the well-known action of a cat licking her paws and thus washing her ears and face. This was also witnessed by the celebrated naturalist Audouin. I have received several confirmatory accounts. In one of these, a dog had not been suckled by a cat, but had been brought up with one, together with kittens, and had thus acquired the above habit, which he ever afterwards practiced during his life of thirteen years. Duro de la Malle's dog likewise learnt from the kittens to play with a ball by rolling it about with his forepaws and springing upon it. A correspondent assures me that a cat in his house used to put her paws into jugs of milk, having too narrow a mouth for her head. A kitten of this cat soon learned the same trick, and practiced it ever afterwards, whenever there was an opportunity. The parents of many animals, trusting to the principle of imitation in their young, and more especially to their instinctive or inherited tendencies, may be said to educate them. We see this when a cat brings a live mouse to her kittens, and Giraud de la Malle has given a curious account, in the paper above quoted, of his observations on hawks which taught their young dexterity, as well as judgment of distances, by first dropping through the air dead mice and sparrows, which the young generally fail to catch, and then bringing them live birds and letting them loose. Hardly any faculty is more important for the intellectual progress of man than attention. Animals clearly manifest this power, as when a cat watches by a hole and prepares to spring on its prey. Wild animals sometimes become so absorbed when thus engaged that they may be easily approached. Mr. Bartlett has given me a curious proof how variable this faculty is in monkeys. A man who trains monkeys to act in plays used to purchase common kinds from the Zoological Society at the price of five pounds for each, but he offered to give double the price if he might keep three or four of them for a few days in order to select one. When asked how he could possibly learn so soon whether a particular monkey would turn out a good actor, he answered that it all depended on their power of attention. If, when he was talking and explaining anything to a monkey, his attention was easily distracted, as by a fly on the wall or other trifling object, the case was hopeless. If he tried by punishment to make an inattentive monkey act, it turned sulky. On the other hand, a monkey which carefully attended to him could always be trained. It is almost superfluous to state that animals have excellent memories for persons and places. A baboon at the Cape of Good Hope, as I have been informed by Sir Andrew Smith, recognized him with joy after an absence of nine months. I had a dog who was savage and averse to all strangers, and I purposely tried his memory after an absence of five years and two days. I went near the stable where he lived, and shouted to him in my old manner. He showed no joy, but instantly followed me out walking, and obeyed me, exactly as if I had parted with him only half an hour before. A train of old associations, dormant during five years, had thus been instantaneously awakened in his mind. Even ants, as P. Huber, footnote 18, Les Mures de Fourmis, 1810, page 150, end footnote, has clearly shown, recognized their fellow ants belonging to the same community after a separation of four months. Animals can certainly by some means judge of the intervals of time between recurrent events. The imagination is one of the highest prerogatives of man. By this faculty he unites former images and ideas, independently of the will, and thus creates brilliant and novel results. A poet, as Jean-Paul Richter remarks, footnote 19, 
quoted in Dr. Maudsley, Physiology and Pathology of the Mind, 1868, pages 19 and 220, end footnote, quote, who must reflect whether he shall make a character say yes or no, to the devil with him, he is only a stupid corpse, end quote. Dreaming gives us the best notion of this power. As Jean-Paul again says, quote, the dream is an involuntary act of poetry, unquote. The value of the products of our imagination depends, of course, on the number, accuracy, and clearness of our impressions, on our judgment and taste in selecting or rejecting the involuntary combinations, and to a certain extent on our power of voluntarily combining them. As dogs, cats, horses, and probably all the higher animals, even birds, footnote 20, Dr. Jordan, Birds of India, volume 1, 1862, page 21, end footnote, Huzo says that his parakeets and canary birds dreamt. Etudes sur les facultés mentales des animaux, volume 2, page 136, end footnote, have vivid dreams, and this is shown by their movements and the sounds uttered, and we must admit that they possess some power of imagination. There must be something special which causes dogs to howl in the night, and especially during moonlight, in that remarkable and melancholy manner called baying. All dogs do not do so, and according to Houzeau, footnote 21, Ibid, 1862, volume 2, page 181, end footnote, they do not then look at the moon, but at some fixed point near the horizon. Houzeau thinks that their imaginations are disturbed by the vague outlines of the surrounding objects, and conjure up before them fantastic images. If this be so, their feelings may almost be called superstitious. End of section 7